Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. Once upon a time, there was a man in China, in the province of Qi, who had his heart set on gold. He wanted gold. So at dawn one morning, he got up, and he put on his hat, and he put on his coat, and he set out for the market. And when he got to the marketplace, he went to the stall of a dealer in gold, and he snatched his gold, and he made off. The police caught him and questioned him. You know, why did you snatch somebody else's gold and in front of so many people? And the man answered, at the time when I took it, I did not see the people. I only saw the gold. Hmm? You know, we as human beings, we're a little bit strange. Uh, when you listen to people talk round and about <clears throat> in our conversations, there's a great deal of emphasis on our misfortunes, on our misery, on our depressions, uh, how unhappy we are. And as we talk about it, you know, other people commiserate. They understand. They understand very well what you're saying. Hmm. Supposing one day, just for one day, you talked only about your happiness. Hmm? Well, I think if you did that, you know, if you just talked about happiness and were not happy, People would look at you, you know, and say, well, now, who's putting who on here? Hmm? But if you talk about happiness, even if you're happy and you, and you begin to talk just about happiness, people look at you and say, is this believable? That somebody is really happy? Hmm? You know, to some, happiness is almost a fiction. Hmm? At most, what we can do with our lives, they say, is we can make ourselves a little more comfortable to make the unhappiness a little less. So, by and large, people, you know, they have a very pessimistic outlook. And that's strange, isn't it? Yeah. But through the ages, there have been people, like the Buddha said, man can be happy. Man can be tremendously happy. And Krishna of India, he sang songs of bliss. Hmm? And Jesus, you know... He talked about the kingdom of heaven and its joy. And they say that this joy 
and the singing in the joy can be our lives. But how can we believe so few people? <laughs> yeah, you know. You know, in China there was Ho Tai. He was the laughing Buddha. You know, and he carried his little bundle on his back and people would ask him a question, any question. He would laugh and give him a penny. <laughs> yeah. And to this day, you know, people have little statues of Ho Tai, the laughing Buddha, with a big round stomach and you rub his stomach and make a wish. Yeah. But these few people, though there are more, you know, that I'm not mentioning, but they are really comparatively very few, you know, against the millions of people down the centuries who have been unhappy. Now, we could say either these few were lying or they were deceiving themselves. After all, they wanted to be happy so bad that they started believing they were happy. You know, you can do this to yourself, too. But on the other hand, you know, we could say, that we could question, you know, how did it happen that these few people could be really joyous and happy? How did it happen? What did they do that other people did not do? You know, because these few people, you know, that said they were happy and joyous, they were not deceived. You know, and they were not lying. They said man can be happy. Man can be joyous. Man has something that no tree has, that no bird has, and yet sometimes you look at the birds and they're so happy, and you look at some trees and they, they give the feeling, you know, that they're happy. Huh? Yeah. But man has something that no tree has, that no bird has, that no star shimmering up in the sky has. Man has self-consciousness. He is aware of himself. Hmm? And this, in turn, is the problem. <laughs> yeah. In us, objective self-consciousness. We can say, yeah, there, there, there's, this, there's the self. We, we have made within ourselves an object of ourselves, an image, a thing of ourselves. Just a thing running around with all these other things. Huh? Objective self-consciousness. Now, in this state, you can be happy or you can be unhappy. In one way of looking at it, it's your choice. Huh? Trees are like they are because that's how they are. They have no choice. The birds chirping in the trees, they haven't any choice. Their state is what we could call unconscious awareness. They have perception, you know, they can see, but they have no apperception. They know, but they do not know that they know. And so it's a kind of an unconscious awareness. But you're conscious. You're self-conscious. You know that you know. And so you're free to choose. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, this is a little bit hazardous. Because in uh, making this choice and being self-conscious, self-consciously making a choice, you're responsible. Hmm? Throws it all right back in your lap again. 
And I, maybe this is part of the problem. How can I be happy if I'm responsible? You think about it. <clears throat> there was once a man by the name of Dr. Schreber. He died back in 1870, 1861, and he uh, <clears throat> uh, had some very pronounced views on how to bring up children. And he wrote a great many books about his viewpoints. And some of these books were translated into a great many languages, and some of the books ran into as much as 50 editions. Very popular. The books were very respected. Something like Dr. Spock of uh, 20 years ago. Hmm? Yeah, very respected. Now, however, with this Dr. Schreber, the views that he expounded were not exceptional. In fact, they were very common but you know how people are they, they, something is in a book and so they set up a society you know, to study these books or to study these viewpoints and so clubs and societies and so on and so on were all set up to perpetuate his thoughts and his ideas hmm? so, and so they could understand them better and so on now his basic idea was in disciplining children from the time they are six months old or six months young however you want to put it and he said, if you don't discipline a child when he's six months old, you will miss the real opportunity to push him in a particular direction. Hmm? When a child is that young, he is not aware of the ways of the world. And so at that time, you make a very deep imprint, and he will always follow that imprint. He's not aware that he's being manipulated. Whatever he does later, he will think he is doing of his own free will. At six months, he has no self-will. He is in the state like the birds in the trees, in a manner of speaking. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't know that he knows, so he doesn't have any will. When the ego rises and he begins to know that he knows, then, you know, then he comes along and he, this idea rises in him also, and he says, oh, this is mine. This is my idea, because he doesn't know where it really came from. So this doctor, Schreber, he said, with the first appearance of the self-will, when that's noticed, one has to stop, you know, one has to stop it. One has steps forward and, you know, in a very positive manner, with very stern words and threatening gestures and a little bit of rapping so that you make the child afraid. You shake him really in a way to the very roots of that little baby, huh? Make him choose, then, between his will and survival. And he will choose the survival and do what you tell him to do. Survival always comes first. How we manipulate ourselves in a different situation is for our, what we think is our own survival. That is something to watch when you go about things. My survival comes before anything. And this is not anything you can do about. It is implanted in you in, through nature, through all the eons of time. Every animal, everything that, that, that moves, survival comes first. Hmm? Everything is secondary to survival. So what have you done to yourself in your own manipulation of yourself to survive?
Anyway, it is said, Germany bought this, these ideas. He was a German. They bought these ideas lock, stock, and barrel. And that's what paved the way for Hitler. Beautiful country, intelligent people. They became a victim of the whole thing, became a victim of a mad fool. Because these people were trained to be obedient. They were trained to believe in this. Obedience is the greatest virtue that there is, they said. They were told. Obey and survive. So they were surviving. You know, sometimes in a circumstance like that, disobedience is greater. If one is obeying, let us say, the inner self, if you have found the inner self, you know, then sometimes one might disobey. And, uh, you know, if you're just saying, well, I want something, like I want the gold that somebody else has, you know, and you're going to go after that, you know, then, then you're fooling yourself, and that's not survival. Hmm? But if you find a real deep need within yourself, not obeying somebody else's rules, not somebody else's ideas, but a really deep need in yourself, and somebody else comes along and says, you must do this, then maybe if you say, no, I must do this for myself. Hmm? If you're always, you know, take somebody else's rules, there's something in you that gets lost. You know, Jesus didn't follow the rules of the crowd. Far from it. Hmm? Buddha didn't follow the rules of the crowd. Far from it. He gave up a kingdom, a throne. huh? And Hotai, he just laughed. Hmm? Yeah. Now, you know that I could say I'm painting this morning with a very broad brush. You know, there's, I could go start from the beginning now and talk for the rest of the hour on what I've already said. And I'm, children do need some discipline in this world because they have to survive in this world. But the disciplining should be toward survival and not to squash them. That's different than trying to manipulate them into a mold. But discipline them so that it leaves them free to move. And free to move without any guilt, without any fear with respect for others, with respect for all living things. Because you know I talk a lot about discipline. And I say to you, discipline yourself. You're responsible for disciplining yourself. Not manipulating yourself. Disciplining yourself. You know, when you sit for meditation, you know the discipline is to be able to sit with a straight back, and without moving, and keeping very alert, very awake, very awake. And then you carry that alertness, that kind of awakeness, into everything that you do, all your activities. See, then you're free to move because you're awake in your movements. And that's a great deal of difference between just following somebody else's rules and systems. Hmm? You know, we have an inner house as opposed to this outer house, we could say. 
and we, we live in this outer house and we live in this inner house. And in our inner houses, there are many systems. Yeah. We have absorbed them from our parents, from our siblings, from our friends, from our teachers. Now finally comes the time to observe what we have absorbed, these systems, huh? So that when you hear a new idea and it appeals to you, but it fights all the old ideas, what are you going to do with it? Hmm? Live in turmoil? Because here you've got this new idea that's very appealing, and you look at it, and, oh, yeah, that's logical, but it doesn't go together with all this that I already know. So what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, you sit down very quietly, and you observe yourself, and you go very deep into the observation. You know, we know very little about ourselves, actually. Really, very little. You know, so you observe. How do you see what you see? You're looking all the time. You're seeing all the time. How do you see what you see? How dumb we are about ourselves, huh? Yeah? Observe. You know? Observe the thinking about what you see. Don't just make a big jump and think and then even, you don't even remember what you've seen. Observe. How do you feel what you feel? This is hard. This is soft. Why? Hmm? You think about what it is that you feel. And you do the same thing with tasting. How is it that you taste? You know, taste isn't in food. It's in you. Yeah. And then what about smelling? And what about hearing? Hmm? You hear a sound. How come? And then you listen to the silence. Because if there wasn't this tremendous silence, there would be no sound. Hmm? This is your own discipline. The learning of yourself. The educating yourself to yourself. And it will give you a freedom. You don't have to move like a little toy soldier very rigidly along life, you know. You can flow, you know, freely. Because you know yourself. You know that your house is in order. And in that freedom, you find happiness. In that freedom is joy. Hmm? Whatever you do in this kind of joy now, that's real prayer because you're joyous with the whole universe. It all moves together. Hmm? <clears throat> Arthur Kestler, whom I think you, the name at least is familiar, even if you haven't read anything that he's written, uh, he coined a word for our conditioning. Our conditioning by our parents, by our environment, the whole outer house, how it conditions us. Hmm? And he called it bapukrasi. <laughs> Bapu <laughs> being a, an Indian term meaning father. So Mahatma Gandhi in India was the great Bapu. Hmm? And people have been conditioned thoroughly by his viewpoint and um, well, anyway, 
Each child is conditioned by papocracy. <laughs> to be very careful with that. <laughs> now, I am not saying either <clears throat> that the Bapu is at fault. He's not. There is in this world uh, a thing that unconsciously perpetuates itself. Hmm? And so there's no need whatsoever to wail and moan against the conditioning or against your parents. That isn't going to help you any. Not at all. All you're doing is complaining. And what good does that do you? Yeah? The day you understand your situation, hmm? your situation in your environment, your situation in society, then your very consciousness begins to come out of the conditioning. And you know, there is the old biblical term, come ye out from among them and be ye therefore separate so that you can be a lamp unto yourself. Yeah? So, now then, if you want to find joy... You start choosing on your own huh? what you need, not just what you want. There's a difference between a wanting and a needing. A needing is a hunger. A wanting is a kind of a frivolous thing. Huh? You do have a very deep responsibility towards your own beingness. And somewhere along the line, you assume that responsibility. Yeah? In all of the conditioned, hmm, underneath all that conditioned, there is still the unconditioned. It's still there. You've just covered it with the conditioning. Now, when you find that unconditioned, all of a sudden, you are you. You fit with yourself. And the moment that you fit with yourself, there's joy. How else could it be, huh? but joy. Yeah. You know, when you hear a bird sing, let your heart sing with it. Yeah. Leave some time in your busy days for little things like that. The grass is green. Isn't that tremendous? How come it's green? Because the green isn't in the grass. But there it is, all fresh and green. Huh? What a joy. And there's dew on it. How wonderful. Don't let us get so hooked onto this notion or that notion that the little pleasures, just of living, are not. And you know, we have such tendencies. We get hooked. It's like the story of old Ned, you know. He's sitting there on a riverbank, and he's got his line out there, and he's fishing, and uh, the day is warm, you know, and there's no bites, and he has a couple of beers, and the day gets warmer, and, you know... And he begins to nod away. Mm -hmm. And completely unprepared, then all of a sudden a real huge, lively fish catches the hook, you know. And he's off balance, and the fish, being so big, it drags him in the river. And uh, there's a little boy, you know, sitting over there, and he says to his father, Dad, yeah, is that man catching a fish, or is the fish catching the man? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we're topsy-turvy like this. We get hooked. And we get so hooked we don't even see it. Huh? The fish is catching us. And some people, you know, they have some very strong desires, ambitions. You know, they, they, the money is, is the 
They, they like the gold, you know. It's it's a criterion of everything. They've got to have this money, or its power, or its prestige, or other people should respect me. You know, and they're hooked. The fish has caught them. And you know, some people seek religion out of this same kind of an ego desire. They get hooked. And they are so hooked that they don't ever see real religion. Just the hook. Hmm? You know, because they, they, they go to a church and they, they listen, and if they think they understand what is being said, then they know it all so much better than others. Hmm? They're caught by a fish. You know, true religion springs out of the very depths of the individual. Hmm? Systems that man has devised. I mean, even my talking now is a kind of what you could say is a system. Hmm? System, because, you know, I've devised it. Systems that man has devised are used to pull religion out of us. It's here. It's got to be pulled out. So it is said, you know, that a teacher fishes with a straight hook. A straight hook. Hmm? And there are these great systems, you know, of religion. There's Christianity, and there's Buddhism, and there's Taoism, and there's the Islamic thing, and there's a thing in India. And, you know, if we would study them and go deeper and deeper and de deeper into these systems, as we mature, hmm? as we learn to leave the childish thoughts and the feelings about them, as we mature, the system changes. Isn't it? In our growing maturity, as we delve into ourselves, we find a profundity in ourselves, and this profundity in ourselves gives the depth to the system. People don't want to look that deep in themselves. It's a strange thing. And they say they do, but they don't. There are systems around today which appeal. They're very appealing to some people. And the guru says, you do what I tell you. You know, that takes a whole load off my shoulders. I don't have to be responsible anymore. The guru is. Hmm? The teacher is. And the guru says, you do what I tell you, and it will make you more efficient. It will make you successful. Now, the American people have got a big thing with efficiency and success. So they buy something like that, lock, stock, and bell, and they join the system. What else? But they're not getting with themselves. They've got together with the system. And now, uh, you know, we do this thing with a mantra, and repeating a mantra, it can help you. And you can go and, and repeat, uh, what do they do? Om Mani Padmi Om, Om Mani Padmi Om. And uh, what do the Nietzsche Ren people say? You remember? <laughs> I don't remember either. Oh, yeah, right. 
And you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And after a while, you can relax with it. You know? It's like a tranquilizer. You know? And the stress is lessened. And if the stress is lessened, you're more efficient. Huh? Yeah. But that's not a transformation of yourself. You know? It takes a lot of daring, daring do, you know, to change the pattern of your conditioning. And people don't want to do it. And the only thing you've got at stake in doing it is your unhappiness. But people cling to the unhappiness. Better unhappy than change. <laughs> huh? Yeah. It's like the, the little rookie soldier, you know. They, the whole squad, or whatever you call it, had been set out, you know, on a, on a march. And it was a hot day, you know. And they, it was the sun, you know. So they came back in the evening, and, and this new little recruit, he says, Lord, what a life, huh? Miles from nowhere, a sergeant who thinks he's a tiller of the hunt, no women, no booze, no leave, you know. And on top of that, my boots are too small. And just he's been walking out there all day, you know. And the guy next to him says, well, you don't have to put up with that. You know, why don't you get another pair? And the little rookie says, not likely, boy. Taking them off is the only pleasure I've got. <laughs> well? <laughs> well, are you still eating your money? Uh-huh. So with some people, the only happiness, the only pleasure they've got really is talking about their miserableness. You know? And how happy they are when they're talking about how miserable they are. You know? They even go pay somebody to listen. They call them a therapist. <laughs> huh? Again and again and again and over and over and over. And they begin to exaggerate and then they decorate. You know, why do they hang on to this so? Why, huh? It's known. It's the known. It's the familiar conditioning. And nothing of themselves is at stake as long as they can perpetuate this. You know, they're like a phonograph record over and over and around and around and around and around and around. You talk to them one time and ten years later they're coming back with the same problem. They've solved it 10,000 times but they've still got it because they never really looked at the roots of the problem because they're not really looking at themselves. What, is, what would it be like if in all of this, well, let us say for the next 24 hours, you put delight in living first, just for 24 hours, hmm? just to enjoy. Never mind anything else. Just enjoy. Huh? Well, I could say, what are you waiting for? Hmm? If you have a need to dance, Let's say you've got something in you that says dance, you know. You know that life comes to you through that door of dancing. Hmm? So if you have a need to dance, go join a class. Yeah. Dance. Or if it's singing, or if it's painting, or whatever. Whatever life says to do, you do. Hmm? Be the talent that was given you. You know the parable of the talents? 
The kingdom of heaven, it says in Matthew, is like a man traveling into a far country who called his servants and delivered unto them his goods, the goods of the master. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his ability. The man who received the five talents traded till he had another five. The man who had two, he also traded until he gained another two. But he that received only the one, he went and dug in the earth and hid the talent. He hid the master's money, the master's gold. Hmm? And so when he met the master again, he lost even that one talent. Hmm? Whatever talent you have, it is, it is a way to the joy inside of you. It, it, the, the talent that you have, it's like an address so that God can know where to find you. Huh? This talent. So now, this is an address, this talent. Are you living at that address? Or are you someplace else? God can find you only in one way, and that's in your inner self. This whole phenomenal world, you know, it's like the outer house in which we live. And this inner house, your thoughts, your feelings, your conditionings, your values, your systems, we work very hard at keeping them neat and orderly. Well, we think we do because we got them all in nice little boxes, huh? But who lives in these houses, the inner house and the outer house and all these little boxes? Who is identified with these boxes? God knows your name. Do you? Hmm? Where are you? You who live in all these conditions and systems. Hmm? You know, there will come, if it has not already, in your way of life, there will come uh, what is called a discontinuity. It is like an abrupt halt, or they say a sudden clash of thunder, which is the Zen way. There is that second of time, and in that second of time, all the old systems are not. They're just not. And then it all comes crashing back together again. But in that moment, if you have been observant, if you have trained yourself to observe yourself, then you can see... It's time really to rearrange this furniture that I've got in this house. Maybe even throw some of it away. Because that moment of time, of no time, that abrupt halt can give you yourself. Once there was a man of chi who wanted gold. And at dawn, he put on his coat and his cap, and he set out for the market. And he went to the stall of the dealer of gold, and he snatched the gold and made off. And the police caught him and questioned him. Why did you snatch somebody else's gold and in front of so many people? And the man replied, at the time I took it, I did not see the people. I only saw the gold. This must have been a tremendously concentrated man. His desire must have been so great that he had tunnel vision 
Huh? But he was concentrated erroneously on somebody else's gold. The concentration should be in here and on yourself, and then you will go, as they say, like an arrow to the target. Yeah? And for those of you who have never thought about this before, there is a, a little technique uh, where you can find out about yourself and what your talent is. Every night, just before you go to bed, you don't have to do this very long, you sit there all alone and you try to feel inside of yourself what's there and is it your own. And you listen very silently. Hmm? And this is something rises up and says, banker. And you think, oh, I want to be a banker. Huh? And then you, but you keep right on sitting very quietly with yourself, you know. To whom does this notion belong? And pretty soon, father. <laughs> father wants me to be a banker. That's not my own then. Huh? So you investigate yourself. Then comes another idea. Oh, my brother wanted me to do that. And then there's another idea. Oh, my grandmother wanted me to do that. Yeah. And the whole family is in here, you know, telling you what to do, even though they're nowhere around. Yeah. What do you need out of yourself? Hmm? Learn to learn what you have learned from others so that you know yourself and not just what others have told you or wanted for you. Learn what is your conditioning and find what is the unconditioned. If for one little moment you can erase all the conditioning, I mean all of the conditioning, then the unconditioned is immediately there and you can listen to yourself. Hmm? <laughs> there was once upon a time a farmer and he was always complaining. The crop was never right. And the people wouldn't listen to him after a while anymore. So he complained to God. The crop is not good enough. If God would just let me control the weather, <laughs> then everything will be fine. Because apparently, God doesn't know very much about weather. He doesn't know very much about farming. Otherwise, the weather would be better. Well, that's true. God is not a farmer, is he? He's only in the farmer, not a farmer. So finally, God answered the man, and he said to him, Okay, for one year, I will give you control of the weather. Ask for whatever kind of weather you want, and you will get it. Oh, and this poor man was so happy, you know. And he went outside, and he looked around, and now I want some sunshine. And the sun shone. And after a few days, he said, let some rain fall, but let it be gentle rain. Huh? And it rained gently. And for, for a whole year, let the sun shine. And the sun shone just right. Let it rain gently. And it rained just right. Huh? And the seed grew, and it was a pleasure to watch it. Huh? And so he said, well, you know, now God can understand how to control weather. The crop had never been so big and so green, so beautiful. And then it was time to harvest. 
And the farmer took his sickle, and he went out to cut the wheat, and his heart sank. The stalks were almost empty. And so God came to him and said, How is your crop? The man complained, Very poor, Lord, very poor. But didn't you control the weather? Didn't everything you wanted turn out all right? Of course, and that's the reason I'm so perplexed. I got the rain, the soft, gentle rain, and I got the sunshine, but there's no crop. Hmm? And God said, but you never asked for wind. You never asked for the storms. You never asked for the ice and the snow. Everything that purifies the air and makes the roots hard and resistant, you never asked for. Hmm? You asked for soft, gentle rain and nice sunshine, not too hot, not too cold. Not bad weather. No crop! We gain through challenges. Hmm? Joy is not only going to come if all you've got is nice weather. Hmm? You've got to have both. Good weather and bad weather. You know, you've got to have pleasure and pain. Summer and winter, day and night, sadness and happiness. You know, that kind of happiness, which is not the joy, joy, huh? You've got to have discomfort and comfort. Life moves between these polarities. When you look at yourself and really deal with yourself, instead of trying to deal with whatever polarity is going on at the moment, whatever weather is going on at the moment, if you're dealing with yourself, you'll learn how to balance between them. And in that balance is the joy. Hmm? Be yourself and pay for it. Yeah? You know, if, if one of your talents is dancing and you go to class and you learn how to dance, you've got to use an awful lot of energy and you've got an awful lot of pain. You're paying for making that talent more. Hmm? It takes a trading, as it were, to take that talent and make it into an actuality. And singing. Look at the hours they spend on the breath control and learning languages. Hmm? You think that you're going to find this I am without some work? Huh? You'll pay for it to know it. I know my teacher said, for one, you know, he went over to Japan after his teacher died, and he said, well, just to finish up, cost him for that year all that pain, you know, of going out to see his teacher over there every morning at 4.30 and taking the streetcar back in town and working all day, and not only cost him a lot of agony and suffering, sitting there in that cold winter, but it cost him $50,000, and this is what, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, somewhere like that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you never heard of him. He died in the Nazi prison camps. He was a Lutheran minister. He wrote a book on cheap discipleship. Now, he said, don't settle for the cheap. The cheap is without grace. Hmm? Drop what you have borrowed. Huh? 
and see what grace can be. And do you go about it slowly? You move slowly. You don't dive in. You move slowly so you can sense yourself as you grope. And you know, living is largely groping. We are like the little root ends of, of the grass and the trees and so on. They grope their way through the earth. And in this way, we do too. You know, we grope our way. See, but you grope and you sense and you feel, you know, and be with yourself until you see the real gold that is yours. You don't snatch from somebody else. Don't try to escape with gold that belongs to somebody else. And to find your own gold, you have to dig very deep into yourself. And only you can find it. And the answer to the question that everybody somewhere along the line must answer the question, you know, who am I? That answer is in you. Only you can answer it. And when you find the I that I am, that's the real gold of all life. consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.